0: Hello and welcome to Building Local Power, a podcast dedicated to thought-provoking conversations about how we can challenge corporate monopolies and expand the power of people to shape their own future. I'm Jess Selfiaco, the host of Building Local Power and communications manager here at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. For more than 45 years, ILSR has worked to build thriving, equitable communities where power, wealth, and accountability remain in local hands. This week, ILSR's Stacey Mitchell talks with Arlene Martinez. Arlene is the Deputy Executive Director and Communications Director at Good Jobs First. Good Jobs First is an organization that promotes corporate and government accountability and economic development, as well as smart growth for working families. Stacey and Arlene are gonna discuss Amazon's use of public subsidies to advance their growth, the company's tax avoidance, and more. So without further ado, I'm gonna hand things over to Stacey to lead the interview.
1: Well, Arlene, it's so great to have you on Building Local Power. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Stacy. So you all, good jobs first. Your organization just does extraordinary work around the problem of corporate subsidies, these giveaways that happen across the country to big corporations. Tell us a little bit about what these corporate subsidies are all about and maybe give a couple of recent examples of some, some of the kinds of bad deals that you're tracking and, and why you see them as, as harmful.
2: Yeah, so corporate subsidies are when a corporation comes to a community and wants to bring a facility, a project, and they always promise a lot of jobs. And they ask for public money to help at the cost of the project. So they come and they say they're going to bring a lot of capital investment. They say they're going to bring a lot of jobs. And officials get excited and start opening up their wallets. The problem with some of these deals is that, first of all, it's done out of public view. So sometimes the community doesn't know the company name. They don't know how much money being offered. And that, that's the case even after the deal's closed. In some states, we never know how much money the company got. So a recent deal that just happened, um, the first one that when you asked that question came to mind was Nucor, which is a company in West Virginia, a steel manufacturer in West Virginia. They got a billion dollars. It was a really over a billion dollars, we think. It was a really rushed deal. There was no work requirements, which we like to see in terms of wages. There was no location requirements or geography for workers. So we think a lot of the workers will come from bordering states. They're actually the real winners in this deal because they didn't have to put any money up front and then they'll get all the jobs. That was an example of a deal that we don't like to see. There was no clawbacks, for example, so if the company doesn't deliver, taxpayers won't get a lot of their money back. Another deal that came to mind right when you asked was a deal in Fort Wayne, Indiana. It was a deal that came under a code name, as a lot of these projects do, and a majority of the city council didn't know who the company was because of a non-disclosure agreement that the company had forced officials to sign. And... The company, the council voted to give the subsidy anyway, and the company ended up being Amazon.
1: Wow. So you have a city council. Is that common, the non-disclosure agreements where where you've got a city government's like voting to give away millions, billions of dollars and has no idea who they're giving it to?
2: That was a little bit unusual in that a lot of the council voted on the agreement without knowing the company name. But non-disclosure agreements are really common. In fact, they're increasingly common that we've been seeing, um, which is a really troubling new trend that we've been starting to see. We actually launched us and a lot of different organizations across the political spectrum, by the way, left, right, and libertarian. We launched a recent campaign called Ban Secret Deals. And the goal is to try to get an end to the use of these non-disclosure agreements. So officials and company officials will know what they're agreeing on, and the public will sometimes not know, will often not know the public the company name because of the code name that I mentioned earlier. They won't know how much money is on the table until it's a day or two before the vote.
1: Wow. And and how common are these deals in general? Like how much money are cities and local governments giving away every year?
2: So we have seen estimates. Anywhere from 45 billion to 90 billion per year. A year. Wow. Yes, it's a lot of money that we're talking about. And that's just our best guess. We think it's on the higher end of that, just because we know how much money we can track coming out. And we also know how poorly disclosure is in so many states. A couple of states have next to no disclosure it's a lot of money that we're talking about. And we really saw an acceleration during the pandemic and in terms of what we call mega deals, which are deals which is 50 million or higher. And it used to be really unusual to see a company crossing the billion dollar threshold. And this year and last, we saw deal after deal after deal. Our researcher who runs our subsidy tracker database, which is a collection of all the subsidy deals that we can find that companies gotten has been really struck by this trend by the just the flood of billion dollar deals that have come in in the last year or two
1: that's extraordinary i mean it's an extraordinary amount of money you know for for a single development project that a local or state government is handing over uh, more than a billion dollars that's just amazing and i and So let's talk about one of the big subsidy getters that you've been tracking, which is Amazon. You all recently came out with uh, a, a look back at the subsidy deals that Amazon has gotten. Walk us through what you found.
2: Yeah, so Amazon in around 2012 created a new office that was designed specifically to go after subsidies. Brad Stone came out with a book called Amazon Unbound, and he was able to access company internal documents that showed that Amazon set a goal of getting $1 billion a year in public subsidies. So to our knowledge, it hasn't quite hit that, but it's still quite a bit of money that Amazon has
1: gotten over the years. I think the, the, the number that, that you all found was that Amazon had gotten 4.1 billion since 2012, since they opened that Office of Economic Development.
2: Yes, they've gotten at least Closing in on 4.2 billion in the United States alone, by the way. We know they're getting subsidies all over the world. But yes, that's what we found. And last year was especially a banner year for Amazon. It got at least 650 million, if not more than that. Again, that's just what we can track down.
1: I want to come back to that. I want to sort of put a put a pin and come back to that issue of, of, of these deals really increasing during the pandemic because I find that. Surprising, And I wanna ask you a little bit about about why, but just staying with Amazon for a minute. I mean, you know, and, and I also, you know, I said their office of economic development, which of course we should put in quotes because that's what they call it. And that's the line that they're selling cities on. But in, in reality, this is a set of, of, of people within Amazon whose job is to go out and get free handouts from government, right? To get tax breaks and subsidies what is the dynamic? Like, why is it that so many cities fall into doing this, especially with a company like Amazon and many of the cases I imagine these are warehouses or possibly data centers. And there are not many jobs with data centers and warehouse jobs uh, in, in terms of Amazon wages are very poor. I mean, these are not the kinds of jobs that you would think, Oh, we should be subsidizing. And of course this is a growing company that has to have warehouses everywhere. So why do cities get suckered into this at that kind of level?
2: Yeah, I covered local government for many, many years as a journalist, and, and I know that these elected bodies are made of community citizens who are doing a public service. They really have joined in a lot of cases to help their community. They want to make it better. They want to bring jobs. But I think they often think they're doing a good thing by bringing Amazon in. I think they... Of course, there's always the allure, the lure of the red, the red ribbon cutting Mm -hmm. ceremony in front of the new facility with new jobs. So that's exciting, too. But I think on, on on a basic level, they're excited to do something for their community. And Amazon seems like such a get. And I don't think that and I think in a lot of cases, perhaps the ripple effects of what Amazon does when it comes to a community isn't fully understood. Now, we know we're in this space, we know what happens to, we know that the workers are, are underpaid, they're paid poorly, they're on, in unsafe working conditions, their shifts are atrocious. And we know that small businesses are impacted when Amazon comes to town. So we know all these things, we know public government could be spending the money and doing economic development in a much more thoughtful, effective, meaningful way. But for the people who are serving on the city council, they may not have that understanding, or they just think that it's a good project coming on. And Amazon yes. is really effective, by the way, at selling this story. They're really effective it coming in there. They hold all the cards, they can say whatever they want. They're not a lot of times they don't show officials, their internal company documents, right? So it's a really, it's, it's not an equal playing field. Amazon's holding all the cards and they can make a lot of fancy promises and people
1: buy it. Mm-hmm. And I suppose they're also sitting there saying, well, if you don't, if you don't do what we want, we're just gonna go to another city.
2: That's exactly what they say. I mean, even in this case in Fort Wayne, Indiana, that I mentioned earlier, where a majority of the council didn't know that they were voting on Amazon. Amazon came back for a second subsidy after the first $16 million that they got. They came back asking for another $7 million subsidy. But by then the public knew who it was and they weren't happy about it. And so there was a lot of pressure now on the council to reject this second Mm -hmm. subsidy. And the council actually did reject it. And Amazon still threatened to walk, even though construction had already started. And even though they'd already gotten their $16 million up front. So Amazon is, I think, a bully and is very eager to to use its power to get what it wants.
1: I did a little bit of math. Um, the $4.1 billion that you have documented Amazon getting over the last 10 years in the U.S. alone, we've been in touch with a community and neighborhood in, in in North Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is in that part of the city. There has not been a grocery store for a long time. And We'd been working some with a city councilor there because they had they'd been inundated by dollar stores and they were trying to figure out how, to, how best to regulate and limit the dollar chains from coming in, and she has also been working towards getting a full service grocery store and the, and the community finally succeeded just recently in the last few months. Oasis Market, a locally owned grocery store, opened and it you know it was a mix of some city financing and so on to make the project happen, but it's a full service grocery store, obviously in a community that really needed it. And the project all told, land, building, everything, cost about six or $7 million. So for the 4.1 billion that cities gave to Amazon over the last 10 years, we could have built 672 (laughs) new locally owned grocery stores in underserved communities connected to say, local farmers and food producers. I mean, so, you know, the scale of this money is extraordinary and the opportunity cost of what we're not doing, like in addition to like empowering Amazon even further and making a a very wealthy company and, and wealthy founder, Jeff Bezos, even wealthier and more powerful, In addition to that problem, it's the opportunity cost of what we could be spending these dollars on. That's just so extraordinary.
2: Yeah, Stacey, you know, that's something that we talk about a lot, the opportunity costs, because it's such a a poor use of money to give one of the world's most richest, powerful companies money when there's a lot of better other uses for it. Good Jobs First is often labeled as anti-subsidy, and we're not. We think that public money when it's going to a public good that benefits the community is a good way to spend money. But the problem with so much of the way that economic development is done in this country and the way that these deals are structured is that the community loses in the end because the giveaways are so big that tax money that was given will never pay for itself, right? A job won't pay the amount of taxes that they're getting in tax breaks. Mm -hmm. So yes, opportunity costs are huge when you think about what what is true economic development and and that's you know building great schools great public schools and making sure that there are safe and healthy parks and that roads are paved and so many better ways to spend money uh, than than the way that these deals are being structured
1: you know i i'm curious you mentioned that good jobs versus not anti-subsidy and this is something that i've really struggled with and that we've you know debated and talked about a lot at ILSR is I can see, you know, there, there are lots of good ways that we might spend economic development, public economic development dollars. I certainly think there are communities that need grocery stores, for example, and that that's a really good way to invest in developing those locally owned grocery stores. There are neighborhood business districts and downtowns that have fallen into disrepair and and are not going to be brought back without some public investment to offset those sort of higher costs of revitalizing those areas. Anyway, I could go on with a list of these things. in the in the food sector, we've seen a real loss of, the intermediating, like small scale processors and distributors. So we've got a whole bunch of like new local farmers and food producers, and we've got a lot of eaters who want to eat local, but like we're missing that in between distribution. And and it's often because those types of businesses require a higher level of capital investment than a lot of entrepreneurs have. And so again, like there's a place where you could say, oh, there's a really, that's a good use of like public economic development dollars. So that's one train of thought. But then I think I look out at these crazy subsidy deals, this maybe $90 billion that's spent every year. And according to Good Job's first research, almost all of that going to the biggest companies who clearly have the ability to game the system to make it work for them. And I think maybe we're better off just banning subsidy deals. But at the end of the day, if we could pass like a federal law that said no more of this, that that would actually be better, even though it would tie our hands in terms of being able to do good things, that the scale of of what corporations are able to get is that we just can't beat that back.
2: Yeah. So one of the, the a lot of the research that we're seeing now is really pointing to investment in public goods. I just, I just talked about some of them, but workers want to live and, and talent that a lot of these workers, that a lot of these companies seek, they wanna live in good communities with good schools, with good roads. They want amenities, they want natural resources, uh, good parks, you know, safe neighborhoods, good housing, affordable housing. So they want all these things and that's what drives them into a community and they're willing to pay higher taxes for that. We've seen that all over the country or at least the research that we're looking at is showing these trends. So for public the governments to invest in those types of things, so then the community becomes a natural attractor for talent. You know, maybe that's maybe that's one way to go. That problem that you mentioned of so many subsidies going to large companies is a huge one. It's just so overwhelming. How can a small business compete with a company that's being subsidized, right? That's, the, that's why libertarians hate them so much. It's a, uh, really it's an unfair... Playing field when you've got the government helping pick winners and losers, but I think I think we still see value in in the right kind of subsidies and subsidies that include living wages for workers, health benefits with sick benefits with health insurance, those types of things with, with where workers can have a say in what their workplace looks like, what their hours look like. Say. And that can all be written into these deals. You know, I think we forget how much power local officials have to tailor these deals in ways that really protect workers and their neighborhoods. And too many of them don't do that, again, because of the power of these big corporations. They come in with their high-powered, expensive, glossy attorneys. And what they're up against is is not anywhere near what many cities' resources.
1: What do you what do you think it will take to solve this? Like, what are the key things that we should be focused on, on trying to do?
2: Well, I think Greg Leroy, our executive director, thinks ultimately federal action is, is needed of the type that you were just talking about, right? Saying no more states cannot give these subsidies out and local communities can't give these subsidies out. The problem is there's never been any real movement on that. So is that realistic or practical? It has never come close. (laughs) I'll -hmm. I'll say that. You know, we focus a lot of our effort at the state level because what happens, so much of this money is given out through local communities, through state-enabled legislation. So if the states could rein in some of what local communities are allowed to do, that could be a big help in in reining in these really terrible subsidies. But one challenge is both parties, Democrats and Republicans, both seem to really love giving away these these subsidies. So it's just a challenge getting bipartisan support to make these big changes that need to happen at the state level. But we think that's probably the best place. That's where we put a lot of our our energy.
1: Are there states that do less of these subsidies have good policies? I mean, there's, are there states that stand out as at least more in the right direction?
2: That's a good question, Stacey. I train a lot of journalists at different sessions and I get that question a lot. It's hard to point to a state that does it really amazing, but we do appreciate some for things like transparency. So Michigan, for example, has given away a lot of money but they're quite transparent about mm-hmm. how much money they're giving away and what companies are getting it so we appreciate the transparency illinois is another place that is very transparent about the way that they they do it because secrecy is a big problem with a lot of these places and in terms of states that do it well i would need to look look a little bit more into that i will say there's an interesting community in the minneapolis area so that they would stop this regional competition that goes on where one county is fighting with another county. In the Minneapolis area, a lot of counties came together many, many years ago. So now if a project comes to one, they all sort of pay the cost of it coming. So they're all splitting the cost of subsidies. They're all allegedly reaping in the rewards. So we like to see that type of regional cooperation. We'd like to see more of it. And of course, those multi-state compacts where you agree not to poach jobs from one another, Is also something that we really strongly support, and we saw that happen in Kansas and Missouri, although, again, during the pandemic and these deals, we saw a little bit of that happening anyway.
0: I'm sorry to interrupt. Stacey and Arlene will be right back after a very short break. Thank you for listening to our show. If you're enjoying this episode, I hope you'll consider heading over to ILSR.org slash donate to help support our work. Your donation not only makes this show possible, but it also helps us to develop the research and resources we make available for free on our website. You can head over to ILSR.org slash donate to contribute today. Any amount is sincerely appreciated. All right, now back to the show.
1: You mentioned earlier in the conversation that these deals had really gone on steroids during the pandemic. And I found that surprising, I guess, because, you know, I would have thought that local governments would be so busy with with sort of the frontline needs of their communities. And also there was a, a sense during the pandemic of a bit of a, like, more fundamental reset around a lot of areas of policy so i'm i'm surprised by that i'm curious if you could tell us is that a, a, a big trend and if you have any sense of why it happened
2: yeah so you use the word surprising when you hear that i use the word outraging to me it is something that my head's been sort of spinning i joined good jobs first in august 2020 so it was a few months into the pandemic and i just started seeing A few months after I started, major deal after major deal after major deal, and and our research analyst who tracks these closely was noticing that, too, she was bringing it to attention, all these major deals. And then, of course, we know that the CARES Act and ARPA, the American Rescue Plan Act, both of those gave a lot of money to states and gave states a lot of flexibility with how they could spend that money and a lot of states are using it and have used it for economic development subsidies so we've we're seeing these massive packages it's hard to directly link it to this flood of money that's come into their states but it but it happened at the same time we know that several states got together to sue so that they could use the money for tax breaks and then they won it's hard not to link it to 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 the cares and arpa money that came into mm-hmm. to states to really work with that was really money designed to help with, so that, that families could stay housed, they could keep food on the table, they could keep their jobs, their small businesses could stay open, all the thing. And, and on top of that, after we saw, right, that the economic impact wasn't as big as we first thought, then there was a lot of opportunity to do new things with that money. And we're still hopeful that that a lot of the money that hasn't been spent will be used for things like better parks and and upgrades to schools and increased broadband and, and all these types of things. In my neighborhood, we're trying to get our school to use the money to open up the campus after hours to the public. Right now, it's closed off after school hours. And there's like an open park waiting there in my neighborhood. Some communities we found are using the money for things like that. Unfortunately, some of the other some other places have used it as major giveaways to large corporations, always large corporations.
1: Yeah, we've been working a lot around helping communities use it for broadband and also for nurturing their local economies, entrepreneurship development, you know, and that sort of thing at the local level and and, and supporting the whole economy. And as you said, there's like a there's a really important policy distinction here between A giveaway for one company, a big tax break versus investing in infrastructure, schools, education, training, you know, all the things that are we know from the research are directly linked to business growth and new jobs and opportunities and all of that, and sort of trying to steer communities into making those kinds of choices, those broad-based you know, economic investments that are very different from the kinds of corporate giveaways. But it's, it's challenging because that requires a lot more work, obviously, from city governments to go that route and to actually steward those resources as opposed to just, you know, writing a tax break for Amazon.
2: Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. I think one area that we think about and talk about too a lot are planning schools. You know, the planning schools across the country and and the MBA programs across the country and and to get uh, planning schools and some do this. Well, we'd like to see more of it, but where economic development isn't about writing a check to a big company or trying to entice a big company, how do you do that? It's It's more holistic than that, like you were talking about, making a community age-friendly, more ADA-friendly, always education. Education, we think, should be a key part of economic development. But right now, a lot of the way that the the planning schools are, that's not sort of forefront. And the same with a lot of the MBA programs, too, that are structured to how do you make the most money, profit, 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 rather than what makes a, a corporate citizen and what do we... What's our what's the role of a of a company in making the world a more just and equitable place? As corny as that sounds, business schools have a great opportunity there to nurture those kind of leaders. I think too many programs are missing that. And the same with the planning schools. So it's a lot harder to do that, the type of thoughtful investment that you that you're talking about. Yes, but it can be done as you, as I know you agree. <laughs>
1: And I think you're right about this, you know sort of this thinking about the next generation of people who are coming into these fields as being a really important way to think about how how we shift directions. And so much of it, too, it seems like is is almost ideological, you could say in the sense that you know, for the last forty years or so, in the kind of frameworks that we've been living in, we we think about like spending money on schools or Community infrastructure around, say, pedestrians—you know, making communities walkable—which is really good for for small business development—we think of those kinds of public expenditures as expenditures. Whereas we think about when we give away money to a big corporation, it's somehow it's an investment or something. Like we categorize it mentally. It seems like as a society is like something else. Like, oh, this is an investment that's going to pay off in jobs, but we don't think about that in terms of those public goods and. I'm hopeful that maybe we're at a moment where that's shifting. It seems like there's at least some signs that we're kind of waking up to how wrong that way of looking at things is. Language is so important. And I think the the pro-subsidy, the
2: pro-large pro corporation movement has been so effective in calling their types of projects investments, as you just mentioned instead of and, and categories, categorizing other things as giveaways for or to let people not sit on their couch or whatever the case may be. So yeah, I think reframing this whole story, the and challenging that narrative that somehow they're creating jobs, which if they are creating jobs, they they're poor paying and they're not and they're so heavily subsidized that they don't contribute to the tax base.
1: I wanna, I wanna ask you in particular about a, a, a certain kind of, I guess, subsidy deal. I don't, I don't totally understand it myself, but there are these things called opportunity zones. And this was a law that was, I guess, passed several years ago where communities, I guess, could create these zones. And the idea, as I understood it, was you know, we're gonna create special sort of tax incentives in areas that are really struggling. And yet, when I read about a lot of what's actually happening in opportunity zones, I'm seeing like luxury condo development. I mean, what is going on, and why are there no parameters ap- apparently around around what uh, places can do with, with these zones?
2: So, opportunity zones are part of the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, right? The, tra- the Trump tax cuts, and they were inserted in there pretty pretty quickly. Very quickly, David Wessel, who was a reporter at the Wall Street Journal, wrote a book about opportunity zones. And it was a really fascinating look at how Netflix founder, he's the one who got opportunity zones, eventually passed his legislation because he was trying to avoid paying capital gains on some of his tech gains, right? For him and his friends, oh, they put a few hundred dollars in and now they were billionaires. It, I'm exaggerating, but you know, Mm -hmm. and they were looking for a place to not have to pay those capital gains. And I think the Netflix founder, Sean Parker, really had a, it started from a good place. At least this is what David Wessel told me. We talked about it where he really thought if they could put their money into communities that were struggling and they Mm -hmm. would really help them thrive. The problem is of course, how the bill was eventually passed, which was as it went through all the stages any type of safeguards were stripped out. So in Mm -hmm. the end, you got the same amount of money, whether you invested in a really downtrodden community or a gentrifying, more affluent community, which is where we've seen most of the investment. And there was no necessity to engage community groups or grassroots groups. They didn't have to do any type of engagement. There was no worker protections. There was no affordable housing requirements. So you saw things like a storage facility with one job literally one job because it's automated. That was an acceptable opportunity zones project. It was a project in Portland, Oregon, where it was constructed and they already had their major tenant, which was a gas company. And by changing sort of the deed of occupancy ownership, they were able to qualify suddenly now for the opportunity zones, really at the last minute. And that was because of the way the legislation was written, where it was so poorly written. The only project that really makes sense under opportunity zones, as they're currently written, are these more mid to high projects? I think one developer said it doesn't make a bad project good, but it makes a good project great. So they're a real problem, and and they won't solve anything that they were trying to solve because they can't, because that's just not how
1: they're structured. Right? You know, you make these choices at the policy level, and you get the outcomes that you set up. Is there any sort of ref- like effort in Congress or anywhere else to like ref- to put some guardrails and try to fix that program
2: there is one thing that David Wessel kind of did throughout the book was was say don't blame the player blame the game but I Mm -hmm. wrote a review of the book and I said I will blame the the players because they it was a group of people who consciously made this decision as it goes along wasn't didn't come out of thin air you know this was this was purposely meant to be a program that that you didn't have to report by the way there's no reporting requirements everything could be done secretly and you could you could focus on luxury housing so yes i've been cheered to see actually a, a couple different efforts trying to reform trying to get things like storage facilities banned trying to get things certain types of projects like college housing for example which is tends to be pretty lucrative because there's always college students they can pay more rent often so trying to get some of those projects out, trying to reduce the number of zones to make it through the heart just so the hardest hit ones qualify. So all those efforts have been talked about and introduced we know of other legislation that's at least being discussed. People have reached out to us to look it over and see what might be missing in proposed legislation. So we're hopeful for that. I mean, obviously we think it shouldn't exist. That would be best case would just be to get rid of it. Second best case would be for it to end when it's supposed to end. And while it's in existence, tighten it quite a bit and require reporting about what projects are what projects it's being used for, which is not currently available right now. There are, there are also efforts to extend it and, Ohio, for example, just doubled the amount of tax breaks that was allowed. It's a temporary doubling, but it took what Opportunity Zones allowed and doubled it for the next couple of years. Obviously, there was some sweetheart deal, I think anyway, that that, that, that was meant to ultimately benefit, but, but that passed to in the last few months.
1: One of the consequences of these big subsidy giveaways is that they ac- exacerbate racial disparities that they benefit some groups and undermine other communities. Can you talk about what your research has found and what you're seeing out there?
2: Yeah. So one of the big problems with subsidies is who gets them. We've talked a lot about the fact that a lot of large corporations get them. Well, large corporations are typically often majority white men who are running these companies. So you have a real disparity just fundamentally and who's getting these subsidies. Our research has also shown, particularly when we look at money that schools lose through these property tax breaks and other tax abatements. In some states, we found that communities with higher uh, Black and Latino populations lose more money to these tax breaks. In fact, the Kansas City public school superintendent, for example, called The way that the city does economic development subsidies, systemic racism, because his schools, which were primarily Black and Latino, were being drained of revenue that they really needed, while the white suburban districts were losing very little. Again, going back to the way that these programs are structured, so there's a real racial and ethnic disparity
1: that happens, both who gets them and who pays. I mean, just so much, so many ways in which... These deals just drive inequality that, yeah, that's really extraordinary to think about black and brown communities actually shouldering the cost of these deals. In addition to not, not only, you know, not benefiting from how the deals are structured in the first place, but also ultimately having to pay more for them.
2: And when you think about student and the way that schools are financed, it's often through property taxes. So when property taxes are drained, they're losing that money. And even when states make some communities whole, you know, states sometimes will, return the money that was taken out through subsidies, it still isn't enough funding often to make up for what they lose. And communities with poorer population have higher needs and should be funded at a higher level anyway. They lose in
1: a couple of different ways, many different ways. I wanna close out by asking a little bit about, you, you all, Good jobs, are has some great tools on your website that individuals can and and community groups can use to understand what's going on with subsidies in their area. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about those and if you have any suggestions for how somebody who's, who's hearing this and wants to become an advocate for reforming these kinds of giveaways, what they can be doing in their own community.
2: We have a great resource on our website. It's really just a beginner's guide to economic development subsidies, and it breaks down all the terms of what a subsidy is, how all the different types of subsidies that are offered, because it's often a collection. And a lot of times a project will layer various subsidies upon one another. So there's a lot of different ways that a company can get money from a community. So we walk you through some of the different ways that companies can do that, how to look for a deal. Because sometimes, again, these project code names make it difficult to find out what the whether it is a project getting subsidies we walk you through that and we also have a lot of resources for how to submit public records requests and how to what even down to what kind of language to use when you're requesting these documents and we also have corporate research guides so that you can look at company because uh, if when you're when you're exploring whether a company coming down to if you can find out who that company is and you can do some research and the company's track record. You know, one, one argument is should a company that has stolen wages from workers harmed the environment or otherwise committed theft or fraud against the government, should they be getting a subsidy? Well, you could make the case no, and you can use our resources to search the company to see what kind of track record they have. We also have model legislation too, so if you're, and everything from, non-disclosure agreements, what something banning that could look like. Also we have a what's called a unified budget. So that give give governments ideas for how to better report their subsidies if they're so inclined. But a lot of, of resources in there for communities. We also work closely with community groups too, so engaged in certain fights. So we're always happy to reach out if the community is looking at something or wants us to look at an agreement, but those beginner's guides and research guides are just full of valuable information. I read it from top to bottom and I'd already been here a year and a half, but I learned a ton.
1: That's great. Yeah. Those are all really, I, I, the, your resources are great. And I, I always find it fascinating to be able to go look up, you know, subsidies by location by company and really just have all of the data at least the data that's public, and as you as you note, know, in some cases we don't know the total value of these deals. I feel like small businesses are a really a constituency that maybe can become increasingly activated around this issue. We just did a survey of over 900 independent businesses nationally, and we asked them. One of the questions we asked them was, you know. Which of these policies, actions would be most effective in improving the survival and success of independent businesses? And the number one vote getter was ending subsidies and tax breaks for big businesses because it creates a huge, unlevel playing field. I'm hoping that that argument, in addition to the ways in which workers and communities lose around these deals, might help us get some more traction with with local governments. We would love to see more activation
2: among the small business community. I know there's a lot of effort there. I know your organization has been doing quite a bit in that area. I do think that that's a really important group to to mobilize and and work against these small businesses who are so hurt by a company like Amazon and others coming in and getting a ton of money, and now they have to compete with a company that can Offer uh, subsidized shipping, right? You know, Amazon doesn't, their prime doesn't pay for their shipping costs is one example. So yes, I think the small business community is, is one that would be such a valuable voice in this fight and stand to, to, to gain so much. I think one point that Greg LaRoy, our executive director, always makes is, is looking at small business starts and how they've gone down. And how alarming that is, because small businesses have really been the backbone of this country. Any healthy country has a lot of small businesses. So that's alarming and be great to see more small business movement around this and pushing lighting against it. Thank you
1: so much, Arlene. It's been wonderful to talk with you today. Really appreciate you taking the time to be on our podcast. Well, Thanks for having me, Stacey. Keep up your good good work.
0: Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Building Local Power podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. You can find links to everything discussed today by going to ILSR.org and clicking on the show page for this episode. That's ILSR.org. While you're there, you can sign up for one of our many newsletters and connect with us on social media. We hope you'll also take the opportunity to help us out with a gift that helps produce this very podcast and supports the research and resources we make available for free on our website. Finally, we ask that you let us know how we're doing with a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. This show is produced by me, Jess Delfiaco, and edited by Drew Birschbach. Our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunctional. For the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, I'm Jess Delfiaco, and I hope you'll join us again in two weeks for the next episode of Building Local Power.